Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are around the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. My name is Michael Zalavari, and today we are wrapping up the 2022 24 hours of Le Mans. It's taken us a little while to get all our ducks in a row, but our ducks are now in a row, and before they can make their way to Monza, we need to look back at what was the grand return of fans to Le Mans of the Le Mans date back in the middle of June of all the beautiful things we love about this classic event. And joining me uh, today to go through everything that happened is Oliver Trovis. Oliver, great to have you back. Have me again. You had a pretty unique experience at Le Mans. You were, the, you were trackside, which actually, for the first time in a long time, wasn't actually that unique. Yeah, you beat me to it. It was... Um... It, it was very, um, well, I wouldn't say it was strange, but it, it did feel like I had to pinch myself as if nothing in the last three years happened because it was, it was packed like mm. proper sardines at some point. Um, and yeah, it, it was back to what it felt like, I would say, um, before the pandemic in that- terms of uh, crowds crowd feeling not necessarily exactly crowd size because i i don't have the numbers but yeah there was a lot of energy there that sounds awesome and it was really something that was clear on all of the like overhead shots and the driver parade and all of that that crowd feeling really made lamar feel like watching lamar again which was really really exciting how how was it trackside you whereabouts were you staying and like what was the the general vibe of being at the track how hard is it to follow the lamar race from the track yeah, it's very difficult um, because obviously you, you can't see the whole track because it's so massive. Um, a lot of other tracks, you can kind of get good vantage points to see maybe somewhere on the far side. So you can kind of keep tabs of, of positions and things like that. But um, yeah, this one, you, you've either got to be switched on constantly and, and working out what's going on or having a radio feed. Um, unfortunately, our radio feed would kind of diverge from following what was going on. So we missed a lot of things, which yeah. was frustrating. Luckily, we had a screen. Um, so, yeah, a lot of places uh, you have a screen so you can kind of keep tabs on, on what's happening. But a lot of the time you're just stuck with with uh, radio broadcasts. Yeah. And and uh, whereabouts did you spend a lot of time at the track? What What sort of section uh, of the track were you staying at? So we we were. This is the the best thing about endurance, really, because you can go everywhere and anywhere, and and it's so relaxed. Um, so some good memories would be uh, for hyperpole. We were in a grandstand because grandstands are open during the week, um, and I think that was one of my biggest kind of memories of of fan energy at, at motorsport when Nico Lapierre went provisional pole position yeah um, wow. the, the, the 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 cheers from the f- local french crowd and then bruno van der stick on the big speaker we were at the the um around the dunlop curve yeah um first corner and just to hear the the crowd all along the the pit straight it's just this this crescendo this wall of noise and then bruno screaming through it on the massive loud speaker just screaming alpine um yeah, it it was amazing. And, you know, that's the kind of energy similar to when Lotterer broke down from the lead. Yeah. Um, leaving Jackie Chan, LMP2, inheriting the lead. And it was kind of that same mad 
feeling uh, yeah. of energy that's um, awesome from a similar location of track actually and then the rest um yeah we went absolutely everywhere so we usually do the start um uh, around the forestesses and then we go to tetra rouge and then um kind of do a circuit backwards so yeah. we follow the track in reverse uh, and stopping at all sorts of places around around the lap just yeah cool see everything that's awesome. That's good things for me to know next year when I try and make the trek over to Lamar. Uh, overall impressions on the race, though. So uh, it was uh, maybe not the the most classic of events, especially in the last you know ten years that we've seen at Lamar. But what, what were your thoughts on on the racing product on track uh, over the course of twenty four hours? Yeah, it, it it's kind of back to its original you know test of endurance especially with the the high temperatures um okay luckily luckily the it, it was the week before the heat wave not during the heat wave because then we would have had some crazy attritional race um i believe um similar to uh the aforementioned um 2017 race, race yeah. yeah exactly because everyone was breaking down from the heat in that respect you know it could have been worse with the heat but it still was really hot um, so, so just quickly, um, what does really hot for you mean? Because that might mean something different to me. <laughs> well, we're in Europe, so um, really hot is like over 30. Ah, oh, that sounds um, like a beautiful day. Yeah, but it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of UV load and um, it's quite humid as well. Yeah, okay. Um, the humidity would absolutely kill me. I, I guess because you're like in between a bunch of forests in uh, Atlamar, aren't you? Yeah, and and there are lakes and little yeah. ponds everywhere and stuff like that. So it's all, yeah, it's it's harder for your body to cool down. Um, and yeah, the, the air's pretty sometimes a bit thick than yeah. I guess what you're used to um, down under. Yeah, but um, yeah, it it's harder for the people and it's harder for the cars. So was it the heat the part of the reason why we saw a, a bit not not necessarily a procession, but we saw less immediate on track sort of battles because everyone was trying to manage things, or was that just a, a, a consequence of you know Lamar? Sometimes, sometimes I, it's like that. I, I think it could be that, but also it's like just I see it as like a bit of a shift um, away from racing each other and more like racing the race. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it is it. It's like an you 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 do your individual race first, and then if you happen to fight against someone else, then that's the cherry on top. Yeah. Um, for each competitor, so um, yeah, it was feeling like a test of endurance individually first. Now a lot of people don't sign up for that, and and they want to watch the cars racing like a sprint race. Maybe if we had a cooler race, there would be more opportunities for that. Um, you know, following behind another car, uh, you might be able to follow for longer kind of thing Yeah, uh, in a cooler ambient race. But yeah, it did feel like a kind of individual time trial for a lot of it, uh, for especially for the the um, the pro classes uh, yeah. and especially hypercar. Yeah, okay. So let's let's tackle hypercar first. Um, so Toyota 
took a fairly comfortable win in the end with the number eight car, uh, Boemi, Hartley, and uh, Hirakawa. That's actually um, uh, Sebastian Boemi's, I think, fifth Le Mans win? Fourth Le Mans win? Fifth Le Mans win? Four. Around there. Around there, um, Hartley's got Hartley's got now three as well, and they they took a a it ended up being two minute win, and I think part of that was them just kind of backing off to let the other car uh, finish on the lead lap um, ahead of the Glickenhaus. Uh, sorry, again, again, ahead of the sister car, and then the Glickenhaus finished uh, five laps down. So uh, it was only minor problems for Toyota. Um, that's five wins now that Toyota have. That's five wins that puts them ahead of ford that puts them ahead of uh, a few other big name manufacturers that i can't think right now um but that's a incredible streak of victories in saying that though how are we going to look at uh at this race uh for toyota in you know six months to 12 months to 24 months time yeah it's it's a interesting question in terms of you know they they do deserve it in the way that they have been metronomically, you know, not necessarily perfect, but they're they're taking care of all the details, let's say. Mm, um, yeah. And it's not their fault necessarily that there aren't OEMs right now um, to compete against them. Um, they're doing their job and they're doing it really, really, really well. Um, and so in, in an individual aspect you know it is it is remarkable what they're doing and and how they're doing it and how they're going about it um and the fact that they've you know had a clear gap not only to their closest competition in the Glickenhaus but also the the Alpine as well and that's not something that has gone away with you know the changes in how the WEC is doing balanced performance in the LMH uh, sorry the hypercar class and uh, how it's been working with success ballasts and different processes over the last few years you know every time we've come to Le Mans Toyota have pulled out all the stops and they've taken a win yeah um when when you you take apart the when you look at the cars individually um regardless of balance of performance or success handicaps or equivalence of technology with the cards that they've been dealt they have done the the best job now on the other hand if you want to debate the the cards being unfair that's a different story um the starters, yes, they, they with with what they have, they are just so consistent with their lap times, just ticking away, um, again and again, reliably passing traffic. Um, we didn't have a repeat of Sebring um, with a with a close pass that was too close um, in hypercar, causing <laughs> causing yeah, causing the crash. But on the other hand, because Toyota were having to chase through bad BOP maybe that's why they had to take that risk uh, in traffic yeah and because they had um an advantage let's say by being the leader they didn't have to take so many risks so there there are swings and roundabouts to everything yeah um, but they they did you know a perfect job absolutely and you know it's it, as much as Toyota winning again isn't really a headline story. It is still a headline story. And, you know, uh, Ryo Hirokawa becomes uh, uh, another, I think it's the fifth Japanese driver to win at Le Mans. You know, you know, five years ago, when we were gearing up for the 2018 event, 
Um, you know, Toyota had never taken a victory at Le Mans. There had only been one Japanese manufacturer that had ever taken a victory at Le Mans. They had been close so many times. So it's it's a very different sort of story now. Um, and I hope people don't lose sight of their achievements because of the landscape in which they're doing them in. And we'll talk a bit more about this a bit later on. But the next point that I wanted to get to is Jim Glickenhaus has an overall Le Mans podium. And how cool is that? It's brilliant. It's, Just seeing pictures of of him and his wife Cameron walking to the to the podium down the pit lane hand in hand is like that's the stuff of dreams. Kind yeah, of thing, you know, you you get like emotional thinking of it because that's this person's dream their whole life, and then they've just gone and done it. You know. Yeah. It's just amazing. How cool is that? How cool is that? And uh, something that shouldn't be lost in this is that in their two entries at Le Mans, over two cars for two years, they have a 100% finishing rate, uh, and they have taken fourth and fifth and third and fourth. Some manufacturers don't have that finishing record. They have run almost faultlessly at Le Mans, and they got rewarded this year by being the best, the next best car after the literal biggest manufacturer of cars in the world, question mark? Maybe not literally the biggest, but you kind of get the point that I'm trying to make here. They've gone up against the heavyweights, and they were, you know, in the end, five laps short. And five laps, we've seen uh, Lamar decided by more than that in the past, certainly. That doesn't make it a, a fantastic race, you know, a door-banging race. But five laps is an, an achievement in itself. And, yeah, as I said, Glickenhaus has a better result, at uh, a better track record at Lamar than than Nissan does. <laughs> yeah, it, it is amazing. And and also you look at the, the reliability of these cars. So um, Jim was saying in an interview on Daily Sports Car, you know, before last year's race, people were joking about their prospects and how they would last two hours, three hours and kind of taking bets on when they would retire rather than, you know, if they would get both cars to the finish. And I believe... They've only had, um, let me check the numbers. Um, they've only had one car in the garage ever um, for one time, I think. And that was um, the number 708 this correct. time around. And can't quite remember what the problem was off the top of my head, but I do know that I actually wrote that article <laughs> that went up on Daily Sports Car. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't something that was... It was a 10-minute stop. Yeah, it so wasn't something that was... Done They've done 48 hours of racing with 10 minutes in the garage, which is astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really, really cool. Uh, uh, Briscoe, Westbrook, and uh, Malou got the, the podium. Uh, and then Olivia Pla, Roman Dumas, and Luca Durrani were the fourth-place car. Now... There is there was the third player in the hypercar battle, and that was the uh, Alpine, who had quite possibly the worst race. It was dreadful. It was dreadful from the very beginning, uh, and part of that was due to the fact that they had no pace at all, uh, and that was part in due due in part to a late BOP change after qualifying, but also they just had things continuously go wrong they were in and out of the garage they were stuck in the lmp2 field for a long uh, part of the race it was just not alpine's race yeah it's it's tough because they kind of they got beat by on on two fronts with the just outright outright pace but also 
reliability. I think they had some issues similar to some of the P2 teams, some some engine reliability issues, and they had to go into the to the uh, garage to to sort. Um, and yeah, once that happened, really, their race for the overall had gone um, because they needed to have a perfect race in the pits to have any chance. Yeah, it's a shame, but they they weren't given the cards in the first place to yeah. to go for an overall. Well, um, let's let's talk about that. Uh, they were given a reduction in engine power. Effectively, they got a, a larger, larger, more restriction to the engine, um, which knocked off. I think uh, DS, DSC reported knocked off about sixteen horsepower. Uh, they looked like a sitting duck in the straights, and they looked like they struggled to pass the P two cars in the straights. Uh, you can't manage traffic if you're, you know, if you if you're at that point. And they basically were left to to flounder effectively. Now, why does this happen? Firstly, does does that assessment match the data? Like, what was the Alpine significantly hampered by that BOP change? Unfairly hampered. I I only have the the information for the race data. Um, um, obviously, there it's difficult to compare because the way you drive your car on hyperpole is different to the way you drive your car in the race. So it's difficult to, to compare like for like the hyperpole lap times before the BOP adjustment to the race data after the BOP adjustment. But in terms of what you were talking about, about passing other cars, their lap time consistency was a lot worse than the Toyota's. They would find it harder to pass and we have a lot less power so they don't have the grunt out of the corners like they used to do in like during the super season and mm. when they were racing as rebellion. So managing traffic is probably the hardest it's ever been for that car. Yeah. Um, it's down on power compared to last year's Le Mans as well. So from the outset, it was always going to be a long 24 hours for them. And um, unfortunately, it proved it. Um, they were on average a second slower than the Glickenhaus every lap. Um, and Every lap. Wow. Yeah, and on average, uh, three seconds slower than the Toyota. Wow. Um, and, you know, if you then normalize that by circuit distance, because, you know, we're doing a three and a half minute lap rather than a one and a half, let's say, for other wet grounds, you're getting to the Alpine being further away uh, as the third chassis there hasn't been a car further away from the front of the class since the first race for Glickenhaus. Wow. When they had their brand new car. Yeah. Damn. Um, so, you know, it, for a car that's possible to go a lot faster based on its LMP1 history, um, for it to be put that far back is, you know, it's, it's frustrating. I, I don't know how to describe it really. So first first question I have for you then, would you describe it as unfair? Well, that's difficult. Um, I would say yes. Okay. Uh, it's tough because you, you open like such a kettle of fish. Yeah, absolutely. Just briefly, yes or no, was that it was uh, Alpine's BOP change after qualifying unfair? I'd say yes, because part, partly also they have an inherent disadvantage in the pit lane. Yeah, okay. Um, so I would be perfectly... I think it was perfectly acceptable for Alpine to be faster. Okay, that's, I mean, 
I know that you have the data to back that up, but it's and still an interesting take. The second question I have is why was that change made if it's un- if it was that unfair? If you're saying that there has not been a car that has been further away from the leading chassis in prototype WEC racing since Glickenhaus's first event ever, then why was that change made? Well, apparently there were um, grumbles from Toyota based on certain sector times um, and how the Alpine was faster uh, during some sectors or micro sectors or whatever you want to call it. And I just, I just call bollocks to that. (laughs) The, The car is designed at a faster performance window and some sections of the track will, you know, play into that. Um, like for example, the Porsche curves or, or the Dunlop curves, like that platform that the, the Alpine has, yeah. has a, has a lot of potential in that section of the track. So I don't know the exact complaints that, that Toyota were having, but, um, it it also they need to it it shows the the trust dynamic between the teams and the ACO in that the teams need to trust that the ACO are getting it right and obviously Toyota didn't so then they complained um and i think the ACO needs to show the resolve and you know be brave to stick to their guns yeah um and just you know, not necessarily put Toyota in their place, but like, you know, it's not Toyota's race. Yeah. It's the ACO's race. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's kind of going against maybe um, the ACO's kind of what some people would assume of them to, you know, give give the French team a hand up. Um, yeah. Especially when it's a French team in the top class. But yeah, when, uh, you know, I'll go back to the, 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 the pit lane kind of discrepancy between the cars because the Alpine wasn't designed for this uh, stint energy amount that that's the that was demanded from convergence um, so it doesn't have the capacity for the energy for the number of stints so the number of laps per stint so they were told going into it that they should be getting 12 lap stints now they did but not often. Yeah. Like they rarely got twelve lap stints, whereas all of the hypercars, the other hypercars, so the the Toyota and the Glickenhauses, were getting twelve lap stints regularly. Yeah. So if you look at the average stint lengths for a normal stint without any issues, uh, like an early emergency service kind of stop, the the Toyotas and the Glickenhauses were getting over twelve yeah. laps per stint. And, and Alpine and could only get twelve to, with help. Uh, yeah, the Alpine was was averaged. Um, like eleven point three laps, yeah, on a normal stint. So if you then extrapolate that out at the half race distance, they've lost a stint, so they're going to have to do another stop. So they're going to have to do two extra stops, and that's three quarters of a lap, yeah, that they've just lost. So you know, to make the only way they're going to make up for that is by being the faster car, especially when Toyota pretty running perfect. So this is my point, going back to my point, that for there to be an equitable race, there needs to be 
the Alpine having an advantage on track. We saw that at Sebring. It was yep. too much. The advantage was double that uh, on track than the disadvantage in the pit lane from the stints. So they needed to be pegged back. That's possible with the balance of performance parameters. But this was just, yeah, it was just too much. Yeah. The next question I have, and this is where we're going to leave hypercar discussion. Uh, does the ACO want an equitable race? Was that the ACO's goal? Uh, I don't. I want to say no comment, but I know I can't. You can't. You can. You can totally say no comment. I've got a few things that I can throw into the discussion as starter points if you want. Yeah, go for it. So uh, the the first point I want to make is to follow on from what you said about that car being built for LMP1. Uh, when that car was in the super season, that car did a 3.17 around Le Mans in Hyperpole. So that car was tracking 12 to 13 seconds below its peak pace. And you can't just have, you can't just balance a car to do that without having other flow on problems. So that's uh, the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is that it would... This, this is kind of what I'm getting to with the does the ACO want an equitable race? It would look bad for the ACO, even with Alpine being a French team, if the old product can, had a chance to beat the new product. They basically, you know, you want to you want to try and hedge away from that as much as possible. So I wonder if the ACO at some point had said to Alpine or internally, we will give them the best chance to take pole position but we will not let them have a chance in the race because that's what the 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 BOP change says to me it says that we have given you your chance in the spotlight and we are not going to give it to you for the rest of the weekend yeah i i i think that's i'm not happy with that it doesn't sit right with me i think is the right pay, say the way to yeah. say that cuz they're here to race they're not here to qualify you know that's true. Um, we're here to watch the race. We're not necessarily here to watch qualifying. Yep. We're here for the race. So you know, the race is is the is the the magic. Um, and yeah, it, it if if that is the way that Alpine are treated, then they're within their rights to just not turn up. Bugger off, right? Uh, they're, there, they're there to race. You know, absolutely. And I. And totally respectful for that, but they are running a grandfathered chassis in the second year of its its outdatedness. What's the word I'm looking for there? Ah, so what? I find I find it no. There's no. I don't see a problem with that car winning overall, whatsoever. That's Toyota's problem. Yeah, to go cry about it, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. I, like, That's how I'm gonna say it. I I can, I can totally, I can get on board with that, but I think the ACO would not. Uh, and it is, as you said before, it is their event, uh, and they are well within their rights to. Well, I mean. They're well within their rights to hamstring one of the competitors because that's basically what happened. And, you know, it's it's a shame that this happened to Alpine. They didn't have the best race anyway, um, but it. I think last year was going to be their only real shot at it. Um, and I'm hoping that when they return with an LMDH machine in 2024, that they are given a much better deck of cards to play with. Because it was very clear from the outset 
that once that uh, BOP change happened, that they would be trundling around the back of the class, and that's exactly where they were. Yeah, I think I think though, on the other hand, with such a empty class, now is the time where the spotlight is really shone on balance of performance because you've got three chassis. If none of them are, you know, anywhere close to each other, then you're just going to have a, a bit of a snooze fest of a race. Last year, there was the overlap between the Alpine and the Glickenhaus. And a lot of people say the most exciting thing at Le Mans for hypercar was the battling between the Alpine and the Glickenhaus. Mm. That that was non-existent this year. Yeah, absolutely. I, even, if they, even if they had, uh, you know, with the tinfoil hat on, deliberately masterminded those two to, to fight against each other for second place that still would have been an improvement on the show uh, than just having the discrete first, second, third best chassis. Yeah. Even if they were such a mastermind, then they shot themselves in the foot by not masterminding it in a good way kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's something that I absolutely agree with as well. It was kind of not a chore to watch LMP, uh, LMH, rather. Well, hypercar, rather, rather. Um, but I will say that if you, if I look back at my notes for, uh, my coverage of the race, um, for the, I think it was the six hours that I did, I took a maybe eight lines of notes on hypercar because it was static and that, and it had been static since before I was given responsibility for coverage. So that was basically, that was basically where hypercar sat, you know, the fastest chassis in the car class was two seconds per lap faster than the second chassis in the class, which was a further second a lap quicker than the last chassis in the class. And so it, it made for a pretty static race and yeah, Toyota took a one, two. The only thing like the only kind of, this is the super nerdy angle to it like one of the few redeeming qualities of it was just looking at when the slow zones were coming in and out because then you could track between the two toyotas like okay one of them had to go through the slow zone one more time so then they lost five seconds or something yeah um and that was kind of the only redeeming quality of it um and that is you know really anoraki one one but, for the nerds yeah which, which and you know and there's no expectation yeah but there's no expectation for um people to do that it it works for the n24 yeah because they don't have safety cars and stuff and there are loads of flow zones and and um things like that but because there are so many entries um there's always something going on to kind of you know have an easier to digest product um, and then you still have these slow zone intricacies for people that want to look at it. Whereas for us at the moment, there's none of that. Um, yeah. It will come in when we have a more GT3 like top class um, with variety and density, um, but we still having to wait. And oh, we'll wrap around to that at the very end of the show. So that was Hypercar. Let's have a look at LMP2, because LMP2 was littered with storylines, some quite good and some quite not so good. So the first one that is, well, the headline of LMP2 was the Mighty 38 Jota Sport. They, well, not, sorry, not Jota Sport, Jota uh, took a, a victory. I think it's what, five years after they last took victory and then... You know, 
is almost it's eight years since they took their first victory in class in LMP2, which is an astonishing uh, longevity to have in the class. They took home a double podium as well with the number 28 car uh, finishing in third. But on top of that, Ollie, they were utterly dominant. They ended up winning by over a... Uh, it ended up not being over a lap. I think they lost out in a slow zone late on in the race, but they did not look like seeding the lead for the second half of that race, the last 14 hours of that race, they were unstoppable, and it was it was just a, an absolute Jota classic. Yeah, and, and it was, to me, um, I think I got them the wrong way around in terms of my favourite of the two. Um, and even looking at the, the uh, results afterwards, um, the, I, I thought the, the, the third place car would be the, the better of the two, but I was wrong, and mm. Yeah, it was just metronomic and, you know, that's why we now see them moving to the top class because they're just, they are that good. Absolutely. And we were not all that impressed by their offering uh, prior to Lamar. I remember both of us in our pre-race uh, uh, breakdown of the LMP2 class, uh, you know, umming and ahhing about whether Jota would have the, the pace, but they really played their strategy very nicely to get into a position where they could race the pros in the car ahead of all the AMs to the point where they built a lap advantage. Yeah. I mean, looking at the amateur or well, the the data from all the racing from all the individual drivers um you look at the the silver um roberto gonzalez 28 oh well 28 you look at the the silver for the 28 he's faster than some of the platinums like his average lap times were were faster than will stevens who was the one of the fastest if not the fastest in the sister car so so who is the 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 28 had uh, oliver rasmussen uh, ed jones and jonathan aberdeen and i think it is in fact aberdeen who is this silver no it's rasmussen my apologies yeah so it's it's confusing with silver and platinum because they look very similar but he yeah rasmussen was a very platinum like silver let's say um, which makes it even more confusing because, yeah, his his lap times were pretty, pretty good. Yeah. And then... Uh, In fact, second fastest silver driver of the event just behind Bent Viscal. Yeah, and, and uh, Roberto Gonzalez, he was pretty solid. I think, you know, the let's say the bottom of the top third of silvers. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, he did his job. And then it, it shows you how good the Jota outfit is to turn like a regular silver into a race winning package, especially considering how in the last two seasons there's been this real super silver kind of fake silver breaking the system cheat, cheat code kind of angle where the only way you can win the race is by having a driver that doesn't fit the mold of the driver mold kind of thing yeah Um, so it is remarkable how in this day and age of that that you can get a guy like gonzalez and wipe the floor with everyone like yeah it's it's really cool it is pretty impressive um so we're just uh ollie's just posted in our live chat the uh uh the b pillar analysis of uh the fastest uh, race laps and the fastest 
of all of the LMP2 drivers. And two things really stick out to me. Um, the first one is that if you look at the very top of that list, uh, it is Nick DeFries ahead of Antonio Felix da Costa. So not only does uh, the number 38 have almost the fastest driver in the event, but just as a sidebar, Nick DeFries wasn't even... Uh, planning to race that car <laughs> until uh, until who was it? Uh, Sima Domo uh, was was removed from the number thirteen TDS racing by Valiante car uh, ahead of the event. So the fact that he just jumped in and gone literally the fastest LMP two driver over fifty percent of the laps that's just wild. So that's the first point. Um, the second point, uh, if you look. On, at those silver drivers in what is this the top half of the field or the top top third of the field um the the ones that are there uh are your podium getters effectively you know Oliver Rasmussen is on there as a silver Will Stevens is on there as a silver Nicholas Croton from Cool Racing they ended up finishing uh in 11th overall which is 7th um, Will Owen in the 22 United car, they ran into problems, but you know, Will's on that list. Um, the, and then Ben Fiscal, who was driving one of the Pro-Am cars. So obviously that car ended up no, nowhere, but, um, you know, the, those super silvers, the ones that we're talking about ended up propelling their teams to good results. Um, so it's just, it's just very interesting to me that, um, you know, there are some teams who were still managing to do good work with like an actual silver, like as I was just saying, or Roberto Gonzalez. Um, and even for a long time as well, the Panos racing team of uh, uh, Julian Canal as the, as the silver in that car, they were in the mix in that top 10 battle as well. Yeah, it's good to see um, a local doing well at his, his circuit that, you know, he literally grew up around and owns a business within yeah. the confines of, yeah, it's pretty cool. We'll, we'll talk a bit more in, uh, about Panas in a sec, but let's just cover off the the rest of the sort of top group in LMP2. So Prema ended up taking second place ahead of the number 28 uh, Jota machine. Um, TDS, we made mention Nick DeFries being drafted into that car, turning it from a car that was would be lucky to get a Pro-Am podium into a car that just missed the you know LMP2 podium, which was quite a sea change. Uh, and Team Penske rounded out the top five with uh, Manu Collar, Dan Cameron, and Felipe Nasser. Uh, Nasser and Cameron, of course, being confirmed as works Porsche drivers for next year, which is quite exciting for them. Of course, they were going to be their part of the Team Penske setup. Um, quite a quite an interesting mix in that top five. Of course, no one expected TDS Racing to be in there um, prior to the event. Team Penske were an outside shot, but you know what are the what are some of the teams that are missing from that top five? Yeah, it's really interesting because I I I was kind of sleeping on Team Penske. You know, I wasn't. They they haven't been doing so well in the normal wet rounds. Mm. Um, compared to the bleeding edge of the class. But yeah, there are lots of lots of teams that kind of fell away, uh, unfortunately. You've you've got the the thirty one WRT, you know, that was a real they had a real opportunity. Um there was the forty one, the with the big names, um on, on debut in P twos. Yeah, I I think you could you could really answer that question by just saying WRT. 
All, um, all three of those cars uh, for Team WRT had problems. Two of them were involved in the first lap contact with uh, the number 22 United car, which United as well would be another one that I'd throw into the mix as, uh, you know, having a problematic race. Their top car finished 10th overall, which was 6th in class, so it would win the next one down. Um, but they didn't have a clean run through that field. Uh, and yeah, the, the number 31 car, the, the WRT car, was the only prototype uh retirement from the race yeah yeah it was kind of remarkable that um reliability when you look at the start how physical the race was and could have been what about that first lap i mean you don't win a 24-hour race in the first lap but for wit and for united you certainly lose it and you know with both the 31 and the 32 getting involved in that bit of contact and basically clamping on the number 22 car that was Three three cars in the fir- in the you know people's top fives, our top fives um, that were in the gravel at turn one. It's it, it's I, I get that it's exciting, but that's that's just a, a bridge too far for the first corner of the race. Yeah, and I guess it shows the I don't know the naivety maybe of some of the newcomers into LMP two. Yeah, they have a lot of endurance background for the WRT stable of gt3 drivers but they kind of yeah shot themselves in the foot there um they could have lost they 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 had not much to gain there but a lot to lose yeah and yeah they all lost yeah like they they all lost like all, all of them ended up uh having problems and you know that that's you know two very big teams that have basically shot themselves in the foot at turn one. Um, what about uh, uh, looking a little bit further down uh, the Inter-Europol competition? Both cars only just outside the top 10 um, behind the Panis racing car. Actually, let's talk about the Panis racing car. That car overnight was very much in the mix on pit cycle to be somewhere around the top five come daybreak. Uh, and then they had a problem which saw them hit the wall at Mulsanne. I'm pretty sure it was Nicolo, uh, Nico Jamin at the wheel at the time man how how frustrating must that be uh to be you know the lead french team in your french race at that point of the race where you've gotten a podium the last two years and to throw it all away with one mistake yeah yeah that's that reminds me now uh saying at Mulsanne because i was there you were there um, okay well how did yeah. it look like from your perspective well the the car hitting the wall woke me up um <laughs> So I didn't really see what happened. Um, and then I, I, the car was just facing us like 10 meters away in the barrier. And and then um, and then I was too preoccupied seeing myself on the big screen um, to work out what was going on. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, OK, well, I'm going to go yeah. find, I'm going to go back at the stream and find that exact moment now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah you it might be quite easy um and uh so yeah that that took a long time though because it was stuck yeah so they needed to get the the um manitou kind of uh to to lift the car out of the gravel out the wall i think did it have front end damage it had front end damage it, it was it made light contact with the wall in, yeah it yeah. it it was like proper proper properly in in the wall like in mm. in the tires a bit and um yeah it took a while for it to be lifted out um the marshals uh 
needing their morning coffee, I think, um, because it was around sunrise. It um, was, yeah, it was, I think, maybe a f- 4 or 5 a.m. local time. Uh, and they were in yeah. th- they were in third at the time, so that's what I was saying. They were they were working. I was tracking who was in the cars at that point in time. They'd actually done a lot of running with Julian Canal with the AM driver, so they were actually working their way up the the sort of hierarchy in that respect. So it was very unfortunate for them. And that's the that's the that really highlights though the dynamic of LMP2 racing, where you have these silver drivers who aren't professional and can make these mistakes and it is maximizing the potential and output of this specific driver and part of that is no mistakes so you might have a slightly slower driver but if they don't make mistakes like this they're going to be overall faster because you keep the car clean you give it to your pros and then the pros do the rest well in this like case we mentioned this- with jota Yes, absolutely right. But in this case, Ollie, it was actually one of the pros. Jamin has a gold rating, oh, and that's that's I who put it, was, it in the wall. I thought it was Canal. No, oh, it was it was Nicola Jamin. Oh, well, that's that's embarrassing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and as I said as well, that car has had a podium in the last two Le Mans events, so it was yeah quite a. I was I was really pulling for that team, so it was unfortunate. Uh, for them, um, they ended up uh, dropping down to 15th in class and managed to recover in the end uh, to 16th overall, which is 12th, um, which was, you know, not anything to write home about. Um, let's have a quick look at Pro-Am because this was actually quite interesting overnight. Uh, f- led for a long time by the number 44 ARC Bratislava car at the hands of funnily enough, of Bent Viscal, who was the fastest silver driver of the event and was setting an average lap time faster than the likes of uh, Job Van Oeter and Oliver Jarvis. So, yeah, that, that was qu- quite surprising. They ended up dropping back because of an oil uh, line problem, I think. Um, so not uh, not just because of Konopka's uh, installation to the car, but you know they did actually run into a problem. Uh, uh, it ended up going the way of Algarve Pro, which was a, quite a surprising. It's the number 45 car, uh, which uh, ended up winning the race uh, ahead of Nielsen Racing. And they actually had a little bit of a tussle towards the end as well. Uh, Pro-Am, how, how easy was it to follow the Pro-Am fight from the track, Ollie? Uh, a lot of the time it just gets lost, yep. um, to be honest. Um, it's difficult to follow because a lot of the time, because it isn't a full-fat category it's not talked about that often um whereas if it was a if it was its own proper category then it would be you know more concentrated on in terms of the graphics yeah. and the screens and the people talking about the radio um so you kind of got to only wait until like there's an hourly update for you to know who's where in pro am so on, in that respect um it was very difficult um and you gotta gotta remember ah oh, that's that livery that's that pro am one yeah um you know the number boards they're all blue they're all the same so i would say it's very difficult um and i did find watching on stream it a lot easier when i was watching a wet round on a stream it was very e- much easier and it was a better product the p2 pro am Whereas yeah. trackside is just kind of lost. 
Fair enough. I, I I'm not surprised to hear that that was your experience because I've just got the um the spotters guide in front of me, and the only difference between the pro and the pro am cars, or sorry, the LMP2 and the pro am cars, from what I can see, is a white undercard, white undercard sticker. Yeah, so it's not even a something that's that's obvious. It's it's kind of st- kind of not even stuck on there in a Part clear of this way. Is- Part of this is also highlighting how good the leader light system is. Yeah. Um, so if they had their own subcategory with their own number board color, let's say they use, um, well, I was going to say use purple from P3, but then you have purple um, in ELMS. But mm. any color, um, maybe use uh, the GT Pro colors next season um, and then use the the leader light system so that then the teams have something to show for it in terms of you know hey we're in first place um and also for the fans track side it it might make it a bit easier yeah absolutely uh quick note just on the number 45 apr car that is a technically a class victory for an australian so happy days uh james allen in that car with Rene binder and uh steve thomas i think that is Yes, Stephen Thomas, uh, yeah. as an American driver. So American driver got a class victory as well. So good on uh, for them. Uh, but it could have been so much more for APR um, with the 47 car, the the Sophia car, which was very much uh, mooted throughout the weekend. Sophia Flourish, John Faub, and uh, I think that's Jack Aitken in that car as right. well. Yeah. Um, they were delayed by 20 minutes at the beginning of the race due to a part a new, a brand new part, uh, failing on the the start effectively, um, and only finished two laps behind the sister car. Uh, so that is that that is a Lamar class victory, um, for that car, the forty seven car that has gone begging on the first lap of the race. Uh, Ollie, um, <laughs> how 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 do you cope with that? How do you cope with losing knowing you've lost the race on the first lap well it's it's tough because you you've got uh, i don't know you've still got something to fight for um and and you've got something to prove i think they showed that and it was a remarkable recovery drive and you know showing what could have been they would have been punching high with their um result without that start problem in p2 overall let alone p2 pro-am um with that result if you take away that that long pit stop at the start and the breakdown yeah it sucks um but there's nothing you can do about it other than just keep driving and pushing on yeah and that you know that team will be pushing on and driving this weekend at Monza uh, for the LMS and so we'll talk a little bit about that at the end but we'll move on from the LMP2 class now and we'll talk about GTE Pro and we can't talk about GTE Pro without starting with Corvette uh their race at Le Mans was possibly one of the worst events that that brand has ever seen at Lamar. You had the number 64 car, which was involved in that awful incident uh, in the morning while battling for the lead. And you had the number 63 car, which had a, a race akin to uh, being thrown around in a tumble dryer with, with just the amount of problems that that car had. And that car had just 
just retired. They just announced the retirement of that car when the when the accident happened for the 64. So bad times all around in the Corvette Racing Garage. At the track, Ollie, when Sims got moved into the wall on the Mulsanne straight, what was the reaction? I'm trying to think where I was for that. I can't remember where I was. Um, Sunday midday-ish? Yeah, I must have been at the start-finish line then waiting for the finish. Um, we did have a screen actually and yeah there was kind of a big gasp at the replay because you know any crash on on those long straights is is going to be a big one Um, even if it is a little touch so yeah sucks to see a wreck like that um, even from just a small touch Um, yeah yeah Let's let's kind of go through the chain of events as to as to what kind of happened there. So you had the battle between the number sixty four and it was the leading Ferrari. I think it was the fifty one Ferrari at the time, which was separated by two seconds. So they'd been you know slowly getting closer. The Corvette had been reeling them in over that stint. Now on top of that as well, you had Francois Perotto in the number eighty three AF Corsa car trying to pass. Uh, I think it was. Um, it was one of the Pro-Am cars with the Pro-Am driver at the wheel. And I'm pretty sure it was John Fowl, actually. APR, yeah. yeah. So I'm, it was John Fowl behind the wheel of the car at the time. And they come out of the uh, the first chicane on the Mulsanne, which is the Daytona chicane now for some reason. And GT car takes its normal line. That's fine. John Fowl goes to the inside to pass the GT car. And because he's been held up slightly, Perotto gets a fantastic run and goes to pass Falb. Now, Falb's quite far off to driver's right, so the gap is in between the two cars. And, you know, we've seen this happen in multi-class racing before, when you have a battle trying to pass each other, interacting with traffic, that's where things go wrong. We've seen it happen uh, in the Porsche curves, with, uh, uh, funnily enough, another Corvette, Marcel Fasler getting uh, moved into the wall uh, after contact with Satoshi Hoshino. We've seen it on straight lines. Uh, I think it was Matteo Vaxavier making contact with Pierre Kaffer in a Rizzi Ferrari. Uh, and in this instance, all it was was Fowl moving slightly to the left, which moved Perotto slightly to the left, and there was contact between Perotto's rear left corner and Sim's front right corner, and that sent the Corvette into the wall, and that was all she wrote. It was, you know, a millisecond of miscalculation, and it's written off a chassis. That being said, that does not change the fact that it put the Corvette out of the race, and it was quite a terrifying accident. Now, what happened after that is something that I think showed a lot of heart from Perotto and from the people at Corvette. And I want to talk about that first. Firstly, Alex was all right. Alex Sims was all right and he was fine. So that's fantastic. And then once Perotto got back to the garage and stepped out of the car, did you see this? on? Was this broadcast on the screens? Did you actually see this interaction happen? I did not see it. I have still not fully seen it i've seen short clips of it but i haven't seen the, the passage in full yeah so uh, what basically happened was Perotto was absolutely shaken coming out of the car he knew that he had made a big mistake he was not he did not come out of the car looking like he'd had a great time he took 
20, 30 minutes to sort of compose himself and then went to the, the Corvette garage and apologized for effectively ending their race. Um, and firstly, he, uh, and like he went with um, Amato Ferrari, the AF in AF Corsa. Now, firstly, the, to, to be able to go and do that and to stand up and say, I have made a mistake and that has put you out of the race and I am sorry, that's fantastic from Perotto. The response that he got from the Corvette garage was equally classy uh you could very clearly see i'm i'm not sure who it was but one of the um female team she looked like a team director or an engineer or something like that basically patting Perotto on the back and saying like it's okay we we understand thank you um and you know that response was universal throughout the corvette garage so i think that from corvette as well as what Perotto did in the aftermath of that were two very very good things and were covered off greatly by the commentary in that as well. Um, it's not the first time we've seen big accidents at Le Mans with uh, teams and drivers uh, negotiating traffic, and it won't be the last. Um, but yeah, it was just good that no one got hurt. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of sportsmanship um, to learn from, from the interaction. Um, and I think it, it adds... Um, a little interest to the the whole history of the gentleman driver and how you know it puts the gentleman in the phrase gentleman driver. Mm. Um, That's a great point. These people, they aren't they aren't professionals and they make mistakes. And you know it's how you you respond to those mistakes um, as a as a life lesson. Um, you know there are going to be kids watching the race and. You know, it was prime time for people tuning in to watch it. So for people to learn from that interaction and, you know, stand up to your mistakes and failings and um, facing them head on um, is is great to, to learn from. Um, yeah, I think Perodo is a great guy. Like, he wouldn't want that to happen on anyone. You know, there's all these bullshit conspiracy theories about how oh my God. this was AF Corsa, you know, sabotaging their rivals in in GT Pro nah. using using their P2, you know, get over yourselves. Absolutely. Um, if, you, if you actually think that. Like, it's all fun. Well, not necessarily fun, but like all part of a meme, I guess. But when you actually believe that, it's like, nah. Yeah. Nah. And no it- way. It had to it had to happen to Corvette as well. This you know the, the the big controversies that we've had as a as a subreddit community have always been in because of Corvettes and not not saying that this is because of the Corvette, but I one thing I want to comment on is the fan response specifically in our Discord server in the R slash WC Discord server and on the subreddit was for the most part appalling it was disgusting i actually had to walk away from it for a a not insignificant amount of time because i could not wrap my head around the amount of people saying perotto should be banned he should be disqualified he should be ripped out of the car and never set foot on a track again this guy has literally the most consecutive starts at le mans of any driver currently active he is a stalwart of the wec he has raced against corvette in multiple different championships 
there is sure there is no way that he can undo that one mistake but to write off an entire career because of one small incident and that's what it was it was a small incident it's the fine margins between between motor racing this is what happens in traffic and as i said we don't love to see it but it is just a multi-class incident that's all it is and there's nothing malicious about that there's nothing effectively wrong about that truth be told like we've seen pro drivers do the same things and put other cars out of the race plenty of times it's just it was just one of those things and i was quite disappointed with the response that certain people were parroting after that incident and i think they should have a look at how Perotto acted and the team acted corvette acted and take a leaf out of that book and get over themselves yeah yeah for sure um they aren't you know uh acting in the real world whereas what we saw uh on on tv was yeah yeah okay i've had that rant now that's fine um corvette double dnf real uh, like to return to that point that is a real shame for a program that has been a stalwart of gte pro and has taken victories in gte pro and quite dramatic victories as well um over the course of the 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 life of the class and for them to end their gto gte pro plight at lamar like that is not what you want to see as a racing fan i i don't think you know corvette's one of those big big names in gt at lamar and that's not you don't want to see anyone end their race like that. Yes, but it did add to the narrative to have your to to have the press release of the the sixty three go out and retire, and then as you're reading the press release, have the crash that kills the the sister car. It's like please <laughs> you can't write the script like this if yeah if someone did write the script they'd be told off for being too dramatic yeah yeah this is some game of thrones shit but <laughs> like, og game of thrones not the last season yeah uh, <laughs> uh exactly it was uh quite heart-wrenching in a quite quite a tough way um we'll move on from corvette uh as as uh as hard as that was um there was also a race in GTE Pro. It didn't feel like it sometimes because of uh, how spread the cars were out on track. Um, it looked like it was going to be Porsche's race to win very early on with the number 92 car just stretching away at the head of the field. And then they uh, had a puncture, a dramatic puncture for Michael Christensen coming out of Mulsanne Corner. Not sure whether or not um, uh, he'd run wide because of the puncture or the punk the puncture was caused by him running wide um because he did uh make a mistake on that set of tires very early on in his stint um but it basically wrecked the whole front end of the car and that was the 92 going from a almost assured victory to a long time in the garage and it just kind of showed how quickly the face of the race changed because at that point ferrari who'd been nowhere were leading yeah it was it was very strange um so I, I think I would describe this uh, GT Pro edition as like a tortoise and hare kind of round. Yep. Where for the Corvettes and the Porsches, you would have one car that was a lot faster than the sister car. And so maybe they were having the, the slower car kind of positioned to match the lap times of the Ferraris that were slower. 
uh, at this round. Um, and then you'd have the two faster cars go at it at each other. Um, yeah, the 92 had the pace throughout the whole race. Quite dramatically, um, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was remarkable um, for them to then have it thrown away. Um, you know, maybe maybe that was too aggressive on a setup as well. Um, yeah, like we saw with uh, punctures at Daytona years ago. You know, it it can also be driving style, car setup, or you know, a defect to the tire, which is horrible to see. But also, yeah, um, the driver can run through a gravel trap and puncture a tire or compromise its structure or can lock up several times and create a flat spot that's a weaker spot. So um, it sucks, but, you know, maybe they could have been more conservative with their aggressiveness um, all round. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it was, it's one of those things, you know, you want to win by the smallest safest margin right you want to make sure that you get to the end just and uh you don't want to push everything too too far and too hard maybe that's just what happened with that stint um in the uh in the race for Porsche because it was it was a bit of a scrappy stint from the off um with the number 92 car they they uh I if I recall correctly they had just been given some bad luck with the slow zone so they had been brought back to brought back to the Corvette versus Ferrari battle when they were pitting. So they were basically a pit stop ahead of that battle. But when they had to pit, they would come in into that battle. And that's where Christensen made the mistake on his you know first uh, set of tires was being stuck in that battle, trying to pass, making a mistake, locking the tire. And then it happened 90 minutes later where that tire let go. Um, the... Whereabouts were you when that happened? I, I, you were telling me earlier that you, you heard something go. Yeah, so we were for sunrise at Molsan Corner, um, and then decided to leave uh, about two minutes before that happened. So we were um, about fifty meters away from the track, but behind trees, so we couldn't see the track. And then we heard something on the radio. Um, that uh, a Porsche had broken down or had a bad puncture and that um, unfortunately uh, Radio Le Mans mixed up the two Porsches Oof. so for the rest of the day I thought it was the other Porsche that had the puncture um, so I was very confused as to what was going on um, and then yes I did see the the video replay on my phone later um I, I did hear a car going slow um but unfortunately yeah i didn't see it it was quite impressive i don't think from our spot we would have seen it go okay though um yeah. uh, but we did miss as well the the one in gtm go shortly after that as well and that was also a porsche if i recall correctly wasn't it uh i think it was the uh green ferrari oh the yeah the ferrari. uh yeah, the Iron Links Pierre Ferrari. Yep, I remember that one. Um, so Porsche ended up taking the victory anyway with the number ninety-one car, and they did it through effectively just running a, a a clean second half of the race. It it looked 
broadly that the Ferrari, who were, you know, leading quite effectively after Corvette's issues, just didn't have the same pace in the warmer conditions, in the sunlight that it had overnight. It didn't really have anything to fight with. Um, you've looked into the numbers a little bit, Ollie. What, what ha- is that something that you've seen as well? Yeah, so I I think that they the um the eventual winner was potentially driving to the pace of of the Ferrari. Okay. Um and uh part of this kind of theory is backed up by um their their stint lengths compared to the Ferrari were longer. Okay. So maybe they could do some lift and coast um where the Ferrari couldn't. So um, they had the opportunity to eke out an, uh, another stint where the Ferrari would have had to take the extra stop. So I think that's potentially one angle where why they were more comfortable as well. Because the gap of the line was 42 seconds, which is approximately a pit stop, which would put your theory pretty closely to, to where um, where that race ended up. I'll take that. Nicely done. Um, I'm looking at the graphs that you posted in our live chat, um, which uh, you, I'm, I'm sure will appear on a sports car engineering blog uh, later on in this weekend at some point. Hopefully. Hopefully. Fantastic. Um, and what I'm seeing uh, is that really, if you exclude the number 92 Porsche, the Corvettes were the, the next best car in the class, the, the, that number 64 Corvette. And so it's a real shame that that ended up uh having the the crash that it did um what about the the number 74 the riley motorsports ferrari how did they do well it was it was poor but the there was kind of no expectation from them uh, i guess yeah um in terms of hyperpole i would have had more um expectation from them by from their you know star drivers but in terms of race long setup and strategy um not so much because it was a kind of not necessarily last minute but it wasn't on par yeah the the and it highlights how high quality these gt pro uh outfits have become uh or have always been um yeah um their their stint lengths were poor you know uh, on average a lap shorter stint length yeah uh, than everyone else uh whilst also being slower out on track so they're losing on both fronts yeah um having to do more pit stops and um yeah slower lap times yeah. so it's just they just weren't there really yeah and that's uh, that's fair enough they ended up with a you know fifth place in class which i mean it's still a top five in class um i read something interesting uh from uh, Van Gisbergen's perspective uh, by Australian journalists, he basically said that he was uh, so concerned with hurting the tyres when he got into the car that he actually underdrove for the first two stints. And when he actually came in, got out the car, and they looked at the tyres, you're like, you can push these like four or five, you know, tenths of a second, second per lap harder, and they'll they'll be fine. And he actually felt a lot more comfortable with that second stint. And that car, you know, it wasn't showing outright pace, but it wasn't. I mean, effectively, it was nowhere, but it was not nowhere, nowhere. Um, you know, they were only about a second further back on average lap time than the other uh, than the other Ferrari, or half a second even. If you don't know what what your how your car drives and how your tires perform, and you're using the first 
your first stint as a test session, you know, it really shows you're not really there yeah. to win on pace. Yeah. Um, and their result came from reliability, let's say. Yeah. Um, or I'll just, you know, add the caveat to that comment, which is a fair comment. Uh, that's Van Gisbergen's first GTE drive ever. So he's done a fair, fair, fair amount of things in GT3, but not in a GTE car at night with those tires at Lamar with faster traffic as well to contend with. So I, I'm yeah, yeah, and 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 the the car I believe I remember an interview um, from the owner. Uh, they didn't really have much running at all mm. uh, in the week running up to Hyperpole either. So they kind of. Uh, yeah, didn't really have much testing going into the event, so that that's why the expectations were low. Yeah, and yeah, as well, you, you look at the the AF courses and the, the the you know Corvette racing and the Manti Porsche, and you you come in basically underdone already, and you look at how much work they they're doing, and you're like, well, of course they're not going to do well. We were we were quite hopeful with our assessment that they could get a podium. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, GTEM, GTEM was a uh, pretty interesting race in terms of how the driver stints were managed, um, particularly overnight. It was something I had a lot of fun uh, graphing away overnight. Um, but as it shook out in the morning, it was the number 33 uh, TF Sport car, the Keating car. Keating finally has a, a win at Le Mans that doesn't get taken away from him, and I am much happier for it. Uh, him Himself... Um, uh, Chavez and uh, Mark Soren- Marco Sorensen uh, taking home the win quite comfortably in the end. Uh, I think they had a 40-second uh, gap over the WeatherTech Racing Porsche. Now, of all the Porsches that were racing at Le Mans, I was not expecting the WeatherTech one to be the one leading the way overnight. That was a surprise to me. Yes, unless until you look at the uh, driver performance um, results. Yeah, because they have a rather ridiculous bronze driver. This was the thing um, that I did not quite pass when looking through the entry list. Thomas Merrill, as a bronze driver, he's almost a super silver, but he's ranked bronze. You've just sent the the picture in our live chat, Ollie. Do you want to go through with this, or do I get the chance to, to yell about it? Well, when you have when you have your bronze driver, uh. In between, nestled in between Nicky Team and Nick Cassidy, you know, you've got a uh, a very good performing driver. Um, this it's... is based on their their um, fastest fifty percent laps. Um, yeah, it's it's unreal. It like it is actually unreal. Looking at that that list of drivers, uh, Merrill is pretty solidly on the 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 halfway point of the first page of the driver analysis by the B pillar that we're using again. Um, let's look at the names, some of the names that Thomas Merrill was faster than. We're including drivers like Mikkel Jensen, Tony Vlander, Combe Ledegar, Vincent Abril, Giancarlo Fisichella. Imagine a bronze driver having a faster 50% uh, lap time average than a former Formula 1 driver. Who's been racing this car this uh, for for years? This is absurd. This is actually absurd. He was the fastest driver in, well, not quite the fastest driver in that car, but that car must have been an absolute rocket because Anne Lau was the second fastest driver of the event uh, in GTE Am 
and and McNeil's not even on the on the list, and he was the silver. He was the weak link, which we knew it was going to be, but he was the weak link. I was not expecting that from Thomas Merrill. Well, and and also Cooper, he was halfway down the list of bronzes with their lap times. Uh, so basically, he did his minimum lap times and then just got out of the car and and, and watched Merrill do the rest. To be honest. It is kind of absurd to me that you can have a bronze that that's quick. And like the next highest bronze is Ben Keating, who did quite well and was faster than guys like Renger van der Zander and Matteo Cressoni and Rahel Frey. Not a guy, but you get the idea. Um, and, uh, you know, just behind Matt Griffin. But that's still, like, what's the lap time difference um, in in that? So, what, Merrill's average lap time is a th- uh, 3.54... Um, 3.54.8, and uh, Ben Keating, who, let's remind everyone again, because I love saying it, Ben Keating won the GTM uh, in class, had a 3.56.5. So that's 1.3 seconds per lap that Merrill was faster than every other bronze. That's messed up. <laughs> I don't know who's officiating yeah. driver ratings in the States, but that's messed up. Well, it, it's an FIA thing. Um... <laughs> and you know it shows it highlights how you can find someone who slips through the net and you know it also shows how valuable that is because cooper was the worst silver but they countered that by having by far the best bronze yeah um and the discrepancies in in the bronze kind of stable between the best bronze and the worst bronze is absolutely huge. Yeah. So the better bronze you can find, the l- more likelihood of being the better team yeah. overall. Uh, and yeah, they found, I was going to say the silver bullet, but it's the bronze <laughs> bullet. And, and yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just ludicrous. It's, it's ludicrous. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, let's look at a few of the other stories while we've got this data in front of us. Um, third place was, uh, Paul Dallalano in the number 98 car. Very, very happy for PDL to finally get a podium. Is, does this mean now that the, 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 the Dallalano Le Mans curse is over? Do, do, are we going to see PDL consistently get good results at Le Mans now instead of always having something go wrong? Fully. I mean, he's still looking for the win. This is true. Uh, for, forever. So, you know, it's it's not going it, to, well, it's going to scratch the itch, but it's not going to go away. He's still going to, you know, that's given him a taste, but he's probably going to want more. I, um, I, I want I want more for him. I want PDL to win Lamar because, of course I do. He's, he's the best dude. I Like, if you ever get the chance to meet and have a chat with Paul Delalana, absolutely take your chance because he will just talk your ear off about racing. Yeah, he he's, seems like one of the nicest kind of people in the paddock. So, yeah, yeah you, you feel good when he has success. Absolutely. Um, and the, the next point that I wanted to bring up is that, uh, broadly, the Porsches were the quicker cars um, and the Ferraris were nowhere. Once again, the, the top-placed Ferrari was uh, in GTM. Let's have a look here. We're looking at the number 54 AF Corsa car, the Thomas Floor, Francesco Castellacci, Nick Cassidy car. Um, and that finished in, 
fifth place, fifth place, sixth place. So the entire top five was either the Aston Martins or the Porsches. Uh, and yeah, AF Corsa, Iron Dames, Spirit of Race, they were just all, all didn't look to have the, the piece. Iron, Iron Links in particular, they had four cars, uh, arrive at Le Mans. They did not have an enjoyable Le Mans in any of the four cars, truth be told. Yeah, it, it was really strange. Um, and it was kind of at the start of the race thinking, hang on a minute, what's going on? Because it was just this massive train of Porsches at the start. Mm. Um, and then added to that, uh, who was it? It was uh, Pinknell in the um, Proton. Proton. Yep. Yeah. And it seemed like he had pushed too hard on those tyres because he, he went straight to the front and then subsequently fell straight back uh, as fast as he went to the front um but there was just a, a wave of Porsches behind to to overtake him and yeah it was remarkable um i can't remember the strategy of the aston martins in terms of starting um their fastest drivers or not um i think team started the 98 and i can't remember if the d station car had its normal um the d, d station car definitely started with fuji i passed that while watching um so yeah. they came up through the field yeah yeah so they did their normal strategy but yeah it was it was kind of sad for the ferraris um they didn't have the pace um and it would have been interesting for them to be slightly faster, have more potential because there were just so many of them. And to bring such a block of cars into the fight would have been really impressive. But um, yeah, unfortunately it wasn't to be. Now I, I have a question uh, that's going to make you scratch your head and get really annoyed at me. Um, was that a BOP issue or is that a team and driver talent issue? Because something that we did touch on in our GTE preview um, prior to the event when I was talking with Chris and Chris was that it didn't look like any of the Ferrari teams were scary. Like not in the same way that the, the Keating, the TF Sport car was or that the, you know, the number 77 was, or as it happened to be, the number 79 was, it just kind of looked like there was a missing link in each of the uh, the Ferrari teams. So is it that, or is it the BOP that hamstrung the Ferraris um, in, in their, you know, 12-car swarm? Well, I don't think it has to be, you know, like a, a seesaw one or the other. Um, I think it can be a combination of both. Ferrari have been very vocal with their issues um, of the new fuel that was introduced for this season. Um, so it's a it's a hundred percent renewable um, biofuel made from uh, waste from the wine industry, and uh, it has a lower calorific value. So um, it's it's yeah, it's a completely different fuel basically yep. to what they're used to and it appears that it has affected the ferrari engine more so um than the other marks um so they have been kind of chasing the issue and fixing it um but yeah 
they should know well they should know better by now after the first few rounds of how to that's from the team but also from the ACO running the BOP to to fix that but also um Le Mans so different to the other circuits that's true um huge amount of on on throttle time yeah exactly so uh, a small change of engine performance can have a big change in results so it's 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 a difficult juggling act um yeah as for the as for the top drivers you've kind of got a lot more strength and depth of youth from the porsche stable um coming through and for ferrari it's maybe more the old guard kind of thing yeah um so you kind of have the youth coming through before becoming gt pro kind of style for porsche whereas for ferrari you've got the ex gt pro guys falling back yeah um the likes maybe that tony vlander and those sort of guys exactly so that's the kind of schematic thing at a high level that you you highlighted well um and it is interesting for what's going to happen though next season without gte pro because then you have these drivers that are in gt pro maybe they go to gtm or maybe they go to hypercar and it's um not necessarily a relegation to go into gt pro because it's still really competitive but also it's gt pro needs potentially from ferrari as you highlighted some of these gt pro drivers to come in and then ferrari using maybe their single seater stable strength and depth for their hypercar um we'll just have to wait and see what happens there yeah that is a very interesting time in the ferrari stable at the moment i do just want to point out before we talk some more broadly about uh, a few discussion points about the event um the fastest ferrari driver of course across the race was nick cassidy his average lap time was slower than thomas merrill for the top 50 percent of lap times so that kind of gives you an idea of where they were in fact the top what is that two four six eight ten eleven drivers uh according to the b pillar analysis that we've been talking about um were drivers in porsches so <laughs> it's also curious how uh ferrari got hyperpole yeah yeah <laughs> i did not pass that uh to begin with oh well i mean Vincent Abril and Mikkel Jensen, I can see. I could see Mikkel Jensen getting hyperpole. Was very, yeah, was quite a surprise. I, I think as well, a lot of the teams that we would have expected to be in a hyperpole were not there because of the red flag brought out by Master, uh, by Fassbender, who was, uh, according to this list here, the slowest driver of the event. So, rip. Rip. Uh, Starting point for Fassbender, though, so that's fine. He's still got years to get to the level uh, that he can still go. That is GTM. Now, Ollie, I just want to have some broad discussions uh, with you as we close out this. Uh, we're going for we're going from 90 minutes, so we're actually doing pretty well on schedule here. Um, so the first one I want to talk about, uh, we touched on this a little earlier on. Uh, 
It is the Le Mans event with the most finishes in history. We had, I think it's 53 cars finish out of the 62 starters, which makes it also the most starters in history. Uh, and it's the highest percentage of finishes of any Le Mans event ever. What are your thoughts on that? It, it shows the the strength of the teams running these cars. You know, we have had some little teams in P2, let's say, that have kind of had problems. Um, we had we had a, a Legier in P2 that didn't have a gearbox crap itself. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it, it it's brilliant. Um, I think people watch, uh, unfortunately watch for crashes and things like that. But, you know, for the for a purist it's it's really nice uh, and for someone who you know likes the spirit of the sport it's really good to have as this lack of attrition and to watch all the teams cheer as the, their cars cross the line you know to have more of that is is always good yeah absolutely um the few uh a few retirements that we did have were broadly um uh well, kind of all over the place, but you know, because there were so few, it's hard to get a real, a real sort of trend. Um, there was a the Team Project One uh, number forty six car and the number forty uh, fifty six car were uh, both retirements. One of them had a crash at the, the the Daytona chicane, quite a scary moment in the end. I think that was for um, Bren ooh, Ollie Milroy at the wheel of that car at the time. Um, but the the other car was the first uh, retirement in the in the race. Uh, the D station uh, Aston Martin had chassis damage after hitting the wall. Um, uh, the number seventy one Spirit of Race car had its engine. The number fifty nine had its engine um, with Alex West behind the wheel. Uh, the Corvettes we've we've touched on. The thirty one had that crash at Indianapolis. Uh, and uh, Iron Links, the number sixty car had a crash at Karting. And that were the only retirements. You know, you look at that list and you see what, three cars that retired because of mechanical problems? And that's that's ridiculous, isn't it? It kind of goes to show, you know, how solid the P2s are, how solid the GTEs are, and just, yeah, the, the, the strength of the teams to be able to repair the issues that they've had. Um, even, you know, some of them you know, were unrepairable, but every car that got back to the pits, it felt like was back out on track a few laps later. Yeah, and then uh, it also brings it back around to what we said at the start with, you know, what could have been if it was held a week later, um, if we would have had a lot more attrition having the ambient temperatures 10, 15 degrees higher. Um, yeah, what could have been? It would have been interesting. It would have been. It would have been quite interesting. Um, we have seen a trend now of uh, hypercar with, I think it's uh, a 100% finish rate, which is kind of scary. Uh, when was the last time... That a class, a top class at Lamar, had anywhere close to 100% finish rate for an event, let alone for two events in a row. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. That might, uh, yeah. Casting my mind back to Le Mans with privateers, um, yeah, lots of things go wrong yeah that might be one for the for the stats boffins uh, who can do a little bit of history for us. Um, Bodes. I'm not going to say it bodes well, but it bodes interestingly for what's going to happen in the class in the future with the introduction of so many new entries 
particularly for next year. So we'll see where that one ends up. Uh, an interesting thing to think about. Um, a question for you, Ollie. Was the race boring? No, it never is. I it's, it's I agree with magical. that. It is. There is something about Lamar that makes it magic. It, it, that was a criticism that I did see amongst um, uh, the Discord server and on Twitter and on the comments thread um, that it felt a bit boring that people weren't signing up for the you know endurance events that we were you know eventually dealt with. Um, how did you put it earlier? The 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 I can't remember what you said earlier, but you put it really nicely. I can't remember either. Okay. Um, it was that good. It was that good. Oh, people people running their own endurance time trial. That was it. Um, ah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it, it it felt like people uh, weren't signing up for that, um, unfortunately. But I want to ask you a second question. Does it matter? Um, well, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. Um, we have a lot more activation uh, potential with the brands committing so there's a lot more buzz around the top class and about the 24 hours of Le Mans that a lot of people might have been tuning in for the first time and with potentially a, a, an un, a, a misguided expectation to see these brands and then realize ah, they're not here yet um, especially Peugeot yeah because they they're missing out just um so they're coming in the next round but yes um i think there might be some people who have tuned in for the first time and have kind of been turned off um by it having expectations um because you know when ferrari announced announces they're going to le mans it's like oh people signing up you know i need to watch this and then thinking where where are they yeah um so hopefully that there aren't people turned off from that um and i'm kind of you know making up in my head uh, uh um but i do have a worry about that um but you know it it is it is a magical event like the more you look into it the more you can find and if you're willing to find enjoyment there is enjoyment there. Yeah. Um, that's something the best way to describe it. Absolutely. That's something I always uh, say to people who've maybe not had the best experience watching or is expecting something a bit more, uh, you know, feverish on track is that the, the best thing about Lamar is that there's always a story and it's not just one story. It's 62 stories. And it's not just 62 stories. It's 186 stories. You know, every driver, every team, has their own story of Lamar. And to me, I just love watching the event, the cars lapping around Lamar. And, you know, it doesn't, to, to me, as someone who's obsessed with this, it doesn't actually matter if it's, you know, boring on track because I still find enjoyment picking apart those stories. I know that that's not necessarily the most accessible thing for someone uh, trying to get into it for the first time. Um, but it it kind of, especially for a new motorsport fan crowd the new the new crowd of motorsport fans is what i'm trying to say who have been brought into the sport through watching formula one watching drive to survive watching other documentaries or other media it is a a very much a different flavor 
Um, so for some people, they'll enjoy that flavor. For some people, they won't. Uh, and I, I think that's fine. Yeah, for sure. Uh, discussion that I put off from earlier, um, but I want to briefly touch on now. Uh, the Toyota years. How will we look back on the Toyota years of dominance? You know, they've won five races in a row now. That's a longer streak than Ferrari. That's a longer streak than Ford. That's uh, getting close to the streaks of the likes of Audi. I think Audi won seven in a row or something along those lines. So that they've won them all five times. That's huge. But how are we going to look back at this period of time? You know, 28 to 2018 to 2022, you could make an argument that the top class was at its weakest that we've seen since the early 90s. Does that matter? Yes and no. Like, if you want to make, if you want it to matter, you can argue that it does matter. And if you want to argue that it doesn't matter and just get over it, then, and, and kind of, you know, look elsewhere in the race for enjoyment, then... Uh, that's acceptable as well um yeah there's there's arguments there's narrative where you want to find it um and you know there's argue that you can argue that if toyota had competition they would have been pushed harder maybe uh or more competitive competition and they would have had more reliability problems or or there would have been someone faster than them or you could have said you know i don't see anyone being faster than toyota right now because you know they have the black record yeah they you know they they have proven against competition that they have a fast car and a reliable car yes they have had some embarrassing failures in front of millions of people watching but also they have had amazing strength with millions of people watching. Um, so, you know, you can convince yourself either way and you could go forever on this topic. Absolutely. And something I do want to just uh, focus in on is that it is not the first time a manufacturer has taken advantage of a weak or a lean period of sports car racing. You could make the same argument of uh, Renault, and uh, of Porsche in the late 70s uh, and early 80s prior to Group C. You could even make the same argument of Porsche in the first four or five years of Group C. You know, broadly speaking, there wasn't any actual competition to the Porsche 962, partly because the 962 was, or sorry, the 956 at that point was such a good car, but also partly because everyone wanted a 956 so the other manufacturers, the other, you know, Group C stalwarts or competitors, Lancia, and uh, I think it was, it wasn't until Jaguar that they started to be like an actual competitor because, you know, the other manufacturers couldn't get a foot in. You could say the same thing about Audi and Audi's dominant years in the early 2000s and in, all the way up to Peugeot. You know, these are teams that have taken advantage of their dominance and... That's what Toyota's done. They've been the only car that has been reliably able to be fast at Le Mans at the peak. And they've done it five times in a row. Yeah, it's not their fault that other people haven't turned up, basically. A a, a question to, to asterisk all of this. Had they won in 2016, would we be having this conversation? 
Yes, because there are always naysayers. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I would be very interested to have lived in a timeline wherein the 2016 24 Hours of Le Mans was won by Toyota and to just see how that would change the face of sports cars because I think it would have had some fascinating run-on effects and I think had they actually won as opposed to one in everything but crossing the line first, um, they, they would have A, much less naysayers, and B, it would have sort of legitimized this period of dominance a bit more. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, final quick wrap-up bits about Lamar. Um, first, for, well, the, the one I really want to talk about was your bike trip, Ollie. You, we briefly mentioned it in our prototype preview, your 24 hours to Lamar. Um, just tell us a bit about that as we look to wrap up. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know what to talk about really. Um, well, okay, I, let, let's, I, let's, let's go from the start. So you start, how did it start for you? You got off the ferry and then what? Rode my bike. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I started, um, at Calais. I got the ferry. Originally I wanted the Eurotunnel. Um, and if I did the Eurotunnel, then I probably would have been able to do it from uh, start the start line across the channel, um, which would have been extra difficult. But um, it is what it is. Um, I took the ferry and around midday on the Tuesday, I set off uh, through northern France. And um, 24 hours later, I was in Le Mans. Um, so... Yeah, uh it was it was it was a difficult challenge. Uh I was riding into the wind for almost the full time. Uh and there was some heavy rain, but uh there's nothing I can control other than pushing the pedals. So I pushed the pedals. Um there were times where uh I I wanted to stop and rest but then the the time the the, yeah the clock was was looming um and also you know you're you're three in the morning you want to get some you want to get some rest but then you just start getting really cold so one way to fix that is to move your body uh i can either do like star jumps jumping jacks or i can ride my bike and Riding my bike gets me closer to the goal, <laughs> so just keep riding. So I had about five minutes of sleep, and um, yeah, cracked on for the rest of it. Yeah, so I've actually uh, uh, found uh, your ride uh, because uh, I've I've managed to come across it. Uh, so just for some stats for everyone at home, uh, it, the, it was a four hundred and seventeen point four kilometer journey um, that you managed to complete in 24 was it 23 hours and about 40 minutes uh that you arrived at Lamar? yeah i had 21 minutes to spare that is quite an impressive achievement uh i and i've got to say that is one of the more crazy things that i've seen anyone do you ride 420 kilometers in about 24 hours that's that's really quite impressive yeah i i didn't know i can't remember what was the first time i thought of it um but yeah, I I I thought it was kind of quite nice the the symmetry of of kind of 
two of the two of France's biggest pastimes. Yeah, of cycling around France and uh, yeah, um, cycling around the clock. Well, yeah, going around the clock um, <laughs> and pushing yourself around the clock. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was amazing. Um, I, uh, France is beautiful. Um, the, the there were parts that were it was really eye opening. The difference because it's the first time I've been abroad in several years, and so the differences were really um, like turned up to eleven, and you're kind of hypersensitive to little differences. So like just the sound of wildlife like birds was so much louder it felt like and you know uh, at night I was seeing like wild boar running out in front of me out of the forest and stuff and it's like um yeah a lot more connection to nature and wildlife there um uh, the landscape is beautiful um the roads are a bit weird um <laughs> they're lovely and smooth but the 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 give way stuff in france is doesn't make sense <laughs> i digress um they do how they do it and um and yeah um managed to raise a little few pennies yeah. to support someone who couldn't get there so you know it, for me it's it's the first time going back and we shouldn't forget about the people who still can't travel um because yeah like i said at the start it felt like nothing had ever happened but that's in a selfish way because we can't forget about the people who are still struggling and affected by you know shielding staying at home taking precautions yeah um things like that and 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 to just uh, expand on that point you were raising a little bit of money for um marshall and chabral pruitt um and uh of course with uh Chabral's much documented um uh, uh cancer treatment so uh you did a very uh good job at uh promoting that how much money did you end up raising at at the end if you want to say well, I, it was only like 300 bucks but so some people are, you know especially with the cost of living going up that's a nice amount of money and, and that's just a, ni- a nice cause as well. And so it, I'm very impressed that you were able to do that. How did that make the rest of the Le Mans uh, experience for you, though? What was it like uh, that Wednesday? Uh, Let me tell me tell me what that Wednesday was like. Well, so well, I'll tell you about the Tuesday. Uh, sorry, the, yeah, the Wednesday night. So um, it's weird. Uh, you kind of lose track of what day <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, I stopped in the city center and then went straight to the track and was in free practice one in the track yeah um and uh that was kind of surreal because i had the kind of emotion of being able to do a 24-hour challenge and then the wave of emotion of finally being at a racetrack again after two two years or three years um and uh yeah that was amazing and then we had uh, an absolutely stunning Airbnb place that happened to be previously rented by teams. So, like, the guest book was signed by, like, the GR Racing team, KCMG's team from P2 days and things like that. Um, when they and, won in P2? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I think they, they won in 2016. Was it 2016? Uh, I think it was before that. Oh, but I'll, I'll need to check. Okay. Um and then yeah had a nap between um 
the practice session, the day practice session, and then the evening night session. And then, yeah, it felt like I'd been hit by a truck um, <laughs> after like two hours sleep. Uh, and then, yeah, do it again. Stay up till midnight for practice. Go to Indianapolis, Arnage. And then, uh, yeah, job's a good one. Well done. That's awesome. That's incredible. Uh, and yeah, I hope the, the trip back was a little uh, less less uh, hard on the body. Oh, plush, relaxing, <laughs> beautiful. Uh, okay, we'll leave Lamar there um, for another year. And it's going to come around again very, very soon. And it's going to be uh, quite something next year. Um, but we've also got another WEC race very, very soon. In fact, about a week away, um, we're going to be back on track with the WEC at Monza um, as part of the Monza double weekend double header. So at the moment, it's European Le Mans series. They're just about to go, as at the time of recording, I think they're doing free practice three or just about to head to qualifying soon-ish asterisk or something. Um, so we're not going to talk about the ELMS. We're going to leave that alone. WEC, though, real, real interesting things happening to WEC Mostly because for the first time since Glickenhaus's entry, we have a brand new car in the hypercar class. Peugeot are making their debut. First time we're going to see the 9X8 on track in competition. This is going to be one of the bigger moments for the 2022 season. Yes, and I think people hopefully are going to be, um, you know, the new fans are going to be given something to worth tuning in for now. Um, more so than before potentially because yeah I think it's really exciting uh, having Peugeot back um, returning and such an interesting car um, visually um, we're going to have again finally two hybrid top class cars going at each other again um, wow that is not something that we've had since 2017 and that yeah, feels weird uh, to say yeah, and, you know, it is a real sign of change um, as we finally start, as we've said for years, to end the transition away from LMP1 um, into this hypercar era. And it has been a truncated transition, hasn't it, as well, with the, you know, the super season and the unsuper season, the, the COVID uh, of course, uh, the um, all the shipping delays that we've had around the world and supply shortages and all that sort of stuff, it is you know beginning to finally look somewhat normal. And I think race cars at Monza is a great way to make it feel normal. Uh, we're not seeing the increase in the hypercar entries, though, because we will be back down to one Glickenhaus. Do you think that uh, Glickenhaus has done enough to be able to sell a car, do you think someone is going to buy a Glickenhaus and run it in the WEC, or is that something that is not going to be happening? Um, I think it's interesting because they're competitively priced, um, and the support package looks to be good from what they offer for spares and things like that. Um, if you want to have your invest and have your car run by Yoast that is there for you to do for a few million euros or dollars or whatever currency you have too much money in <laughs> um, so yeah 
um, compared to LMDH, if you have any fears of balance of performance between LMH cars and LMDH cars, um, there is an avenue to go there. So yes, I don't see um, the the market of them being alone, kind of as a cheap car. Like you have the cheaper end potentially for LMDHs as well. Yeah, okay. As well as boutique cars, you know, you can't expect Ferrari to be a cheaper car because it's it's Not an investment. Ferrari. Yeah, gonna, yeah, it's going to hold its value, um, especially if it starts at Le Mans. Um, so. Uh, but there's the, you know, do you trust Podium, who designed the the car, to have a car worth investing in, mm. versus investing in if you have the money into, like we say, a Ferrari, because your investment's going to go up potentially a lot more. the The car that finished third is is a really strong investment because yeah. it finished third, but next year, two years down the line. I don't think the prospects of provenance growth is gonna, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what you're basically saying is a long roundabout way of going no. Yeah, but no. Yeah, but no. Fair enough. Um, we are losing a- another car from the WC entry. That is Team Penske. Um, this has been on the cards for a while because they are concentrating on the Porsche 963, which has got drivers announced and looks very pretty uh, and looks very Porsche, which is very important. Um, that We might see that car at Bahrain maybe perhaps, um, but that will depend on a lot of things uh, falling into place nicely. Um we won't talk about that now because that talk that deserves a lot longer than the 30 seconds that I want to spend before this podcast hits two hours. Um, Monza though, Monza is a track that is very similar to Le Mans in a lot of aspects. Um, particularly the, you know, the long on throttle time and the reliance on, uh, you know, minimal drag and still high speed cornering. Uh, who do we see being strong at Le Mans? Monza. Oh, um, at Monza, you're right. It it will be, um, yeah, it'll be interesting because you know we've just come from a, a circuit that has those similar characteristics, um, and it will be interesting to see how Peugeot uh, racks up against them. Um, it, it it will be a good stress test on their powertrain and and brakes and everything. So um, yeah, I don't know though. Uh, hmm. I, you know safe bet go with toyota well see i was thinking the same sort of thing but last year or last season rather when glickenhaus had the opportunity at monza they led for a not insignificant amount of time and were in a position to take something from that race until they were afflicted with problems so is this one that glickenhaus may have a chance at beating the giant that is toyota well i think so um they have maybe in in the same respect of how um, Alpine were kind of given with the BOP at Sebring their win. It might be cynically a case of ah, uh, we'll gift Glickenhaus uh, a Ooh, win. That's at very Monza, cynical. That's and very we'll cynical. kind of hide it. We'll hide it in the respect that oh well, the car's designed for Le Mans. The car has good straight line speed, so they'll be good at Monza. Um, we'll see. We'll see. That's very cynical, Ollie. 
It's very cynical of you. Uh, that is only next week. It is very short turnaround. It's probably one of the shorter turnarounds post Le Mans that we've seen in quite a while. Uh, and then we have the uh, summer break. So we will, well, I mean, the season break, I guess, um, where we won't be back uh, until, I believe, it'll be Fuji, which is the next round after uh, Le Mans, uh, after Monza, uh, a whole two months away. So we've got quite a bit of a gap after Monza. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the top class of prototypes looks like then, because it's it's happening thick and fast. Uh, Ollie, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Or this morning. Thanks for having me. As always, um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and I hope you've had an enjoyable time. And actually, before I properly sign off, I want to say thank you very much for everyone who was here as part of the Lamar Weekend um, in terms of in the Discord server, in the, in the subreddit, and who listened to us as well, who uh, engaged with our content either through uh, cross posts onto Formula One or other subreddits or uh, who were listening to the podcast, who came in and joined us for our, our live uh, pre-race show. Um, it's always the best part of doing this is being able to interact with so many people and to have so many people use what we put together, whether that be through this podcast, Endurance Chat, or through what we do um, involved in the RSSWC subreddit or on Discord. And to have a good time, it's it's really amazing that so many people are still finding all of these things for the first time and are still finding so much use out of them. And it's a, a privilege um, that I have been able to be in that position to be able to share this passion with so many people. And it always blows me away. So thank you to everyone who was a part of the Le Mans experience here um, at RSFWC and with Endurance Chat. And I hope that we continue, uh, that you continue to stick around and that you continue to find enjoyment out of us and we continue to make your race viewing experience a better one. And on that note, I've been Michael Zalavari. Thank you very much for listening. Peace out. Peace out.